In one way or another, bishops have been involved in English politics for a thousand years. At the Battle of Hastings in 1066, Odo, Bishop of Bayeux, was in the field to support his half-brother, William the Conqueror. According to the Bayeux Tapestry, Odo did not actually shed blood, but he certainly wore chainmail and wielded a mean-looking club. Since the Middle Ages, bishops have sat in Parliament as the Lord's Spiritual, responsible, apparently, for the care of the nation's souls. And since Henry VIII, the monarch has been the head of both the state and the church. Today, Anglican bishops are still required to swear an oath of allegiance to the crown. The 26 most senior bishops and archbishops form a small contingent in the 800-strong miscellany that is the modern House of Lords. But should the bishops, or for that matter, the representatives of any religion, be allowed to influence British lawmaking as of right? Is their presence in the UK's upper chamber a tolerable anachronism, or has the time finally come to abolish them? You're listening to the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. Today I've travelled to Westminster to interview Dick Tavern, Baron Tavern QC. Lord Tavern is a Liberal Democrat peer and honorary associate of the NSS. Just before Christmas, he entered a private member's bill in the Lord's ballot that would abolish the bishop's right to sit in the chamber ex officio. The bill is due to be introduced in the Lords on Tuesday the 28th of January 2020. Dick Tavern, what are the main proposals that your bill is making? Well, it's a very simple one. Stop the bishops being part of the legislature and catching up with a, modern, more, a somewhat more modern constitution. Um, the idea that religion should have no influence on politics and the complete separation of church and state is a long-standing principle of secularism. But is Britain a secular country? Does it have a secular constitution? No, it doesn't. Now, the historic division between church and state at the time of the Enlightenment was an extremely important development because by restricting the mix of religion and politics, it promoted a democracy and freedom and the right individual rights. And if you look at the theocracies today which have survived, they're all examples of autocracy and they do deny human rights. Now, we're in the extraordinary position that in Britain we haven't completed the separation of church and state and we're one of only two countries in the world which actually uh, has clerics sitting by right in, one, in part of the legislature. And the other is not a very happy example because the only other country which has this is Iran, not the most obvious example of democracy. Why do you think it's taken so long in Britain for us to move towards separation of church and state? Oh, because we are very slow and uh, at major constitutional reform. Um, and it is quite extraordinary that this is a survival from the past. Um, it was a, a usage uh, f from the time when religion played a very important part in our politics. And it's no longer true, because at the moment, after all, we're no longer a religious country. It's a minority, who, a very small minority, who regularly go to church and attend England. In fact, uh, Church of England has a place in the Constitution, but is not even representative of most religions now in this country. So it is an extraordinary historical anomaly. 
Um, and one can't say that it's unimportant because well, the bishops do have a certain influence. How, how much of a difference, though, do the bishops make in practice, given that they only occupy 26 out of around 800 seats? Well, of course, they contribute to debates, and they have a special right in the Lords that when a bishop gets up, they have the right to speak, and everybody else must wait until they finish their speeches. Uh, but it's, it's not just the fact that they speak in the Lords. And mind you, a lot of the bishops are, are, make speeches which are quite reasonable, and as a group, they're on the whole rather progressive group too. But it's the influence behind the scenes which is so important. I mean, why does the government promote faith schools? Which it does. And to my mind, the experience of Northern Ireland is certainly one which suggests that they promote unity rather than division and disunity. And uh, the state schools... Uh, are, are a very important feature. They are promoted by the government, as I said, and they're contrary. Not only is it a question of that they tend to be divisive, but they're contrary to all educational principle. I mean, schools should teach kids to think for themselves. And extraordinary that we should divide education uh, into... Catholic schools and treat children as Catholic children, as Protestant children, Muslim children, Jewish children. Uh, can you imagine a system whereby we treat children as conservative children, Labour children, Liberal Democrat children? It's an absurdity. So you're saying that um, separating children by religious ideology um, is no better than separating them by political uh, ideology. I don't see if we do one, why shouldn't we do the other? I mean, it just makes no sense at all. Anyone who would dream of doing that as a principle of politics. Are you saying that the continued presence of the bishops in the House of Lords has an influence on the continued existence of faith schools? Oh, very much so. Very much so. And of course, it's not just the Church of England schools and Catholic schools, which actually are not as dogmatic as some of the newer religions, uh, but it's also Muslim schools now, and, well, of course, Jewish schools have rather declined in number. Uh, but it's, it's spreading a divisive influence in education. Um, and and the, the influence of the church is really quite interesting. There was one time in the House of Lords some years ago when we debated the future of thought for the day. I mean, not all of us think thought for the day is a very good interruption. And one of the speakers was a former director general, John Burt, who said that one of his first priorities when he became director general of the BBC was to abolish thought for the day, because here was this splendid, most popular current affairs program in the mornings at peak times, very large listening audience, uh, generally admired as a very good programme, and it's interrupted for five minutes by something which does not always promote great sense or logic. And he was taken aside, uh, and somebody said to him, look, if you want to achieve any reforms in the BBC, do not take on the Church of England. And behind the scenes, the Church of England still has a lot. And if, when I introduce my bill, there'll be outcries of horror almost in the Lords because the Lords don't like interference with the traditional rights of bishops to sit there. You've said that, though, that the bishops on the whole may vote progressively. Do they 
um, in general, vote to protect their own interests as well, would you say? Uh, yes, uh, certainly. I mean, if the religious issues had come up, they speak and they speak for themselves. But uh, I think that that is less important than the influence they have on education and on the, our constitution, because uh, I don't think our constitution gains by being the only one, like Iran, which has an automatic place for clerics. Uh, and if this bill were to go through, and the chances perhaps are not all that great, but if this bill were to go through, then it would serve several uh, purposes. One, it would reduce the Church of England's influence at the heart of government, as it were. Not a great influence, but a very important influence. It would also be a more democratic, uh, remove one of the undemocratic features of the Lords, which is very badly in need of reform. And it would also reduce the number of people in the Lords, because one of the troubles about the Lords is it's much too big and so many debates are debates where you always have a right to speak if you put your name down. So many of the debates are on enormously important subjects, the one where you have a, a, a rule or a re very strong recommendation not to speak for more than four or five minutes. Let's think about what the British people might think about um, the abolition of the bishops. According to a YouGov survey in 2017, which was conducted for The Times, 62% of British people think that no religious clerics should have, quote, an automatic right to seats, unquote, in the House of Lords. If that's broadly accurate, is that enough support for constitutional change, 62% of the British people? I think that's certainly a good reason for constitutional, and I think it's only about 8% who are positively in favour of the continuation of the bishops' rights to sit in the Lords. But the Lords, uh, I think, does play quite a useful role at present as a revising chamber. But the fact that there's no democratic justification for it reduces public respect for the Lords. Uh, they would like to see a more democratic constitution. So it would certainly be a step forward um, in the reform of the House of Lords, uh, only one step forward because it needs absolutely radical reform in my view, uh, but there's always this talk about uh, can we have an elected second chamber? Uh, well, the, yes, I think we should have an elected second chamber, but not as a rival to the House of Commons. It should be part of a much larger constitutional change. That's very interesting, Dick. Um, thinking about the House of Lords as, as a body which represents perhaps different aspects of British society, and another alternative which is often mooted to getting rid of the bishops is um, instead to increase the number of religious clerics in the Lords, but to broaden the criteria so that representatives of all different religions um, and Church of England denominations within the UK um, are represented. Isn't this proposal worth considering? No. It would be even worse than the present system we've got. We want to stop this mix of religion uh, and politics, where it's inexorably mixed. Uh, look at Sunni and Shias, which have torn apart the Middle East. I mean, look what's happening in Turkey. Uh, and uh, at the moment, there's an unfortunate trend in the world for those countries which did not have a theocratic institution, a constitution, to move that way. I mean, Malaysia was a good example of a country which was Muslim, 
but moving more and more towards democracy. Now it's rather reversing its trend because of the greater pressure towards having a theocratic state. And Indonesia is going the same way, the largest Muslim country in the world. So, I mean, there are. The last thing you want is to have more religion in, mixed with politics. We should get it right out of politics. Some, some people have said, though, on, on that point, that you could also say have a group of representatives of non-religious people, maybe the humanists or the atheist representatives. Would, would that, what do you say to that? Yes, but, but again, I mean, do you really want to have all these different attitudes uh, represented as of right? I mean, if that's what people want to elect, fair enough. And as far as if people do want to, if there are some bishops who make a major contribution, I can think of one, for example, the former Bishop of Oxford, uh, Richard Harris, uh, makes very useful contribution. He sits in the Lords now as an individual appointed for his contribution to society. You could, if, if people wanted, I mean, uh, of course we have a, an appointed House of Lords and I think that we should move the big constitutional change towards an elected representative House of Lords. So how might that work um, to have uh, oh, such constitutional change? Of course, it's a, it would be a huge um, dramatic... Uh, it would be so people. dramatic that it's not going to happen, and certainly in my lifetime. But we now have an increasingly assertive Scottish Parliament and move towards a complete break-up of the United Kingdom. We have uh, an Irish, Northern Irish Parliament, uh, Stormont, we have a Welsh Parliament. Uh, we have a, a certain amount of, of quite influential mayors now, like the mayor, for example, for, for Birmingham and the wider area. We have got an opportunity at this moment, when there's so much talk about, for a more federal Britain. We're far too centralised as a nation. It's a, greater, it's a great disadvantage in this concentration on London and the rest. So, Why is it a disadvantage? Well, it's... A, because you get all the powers moment concentrate in London and neglect of, of certain areas of the country which feel neglected. But if you had a federal Britain and you had not only a Scottish and a Welsh and a, a Northern Irish Parliament, but you had one for the North East uh, and the North West and the South West and London and the South East, you could have a constitution which is really rather like the German constitution, which works extremely well, where they have the Bundesrat of the different Länder, which, first of all, have considerable amount of powers which are devolved from the centre, and then they are represented in the upper house, the Bundesrat, um, and they, their elected representatives from the elected Länder, and in this case it would be from the different regions or countries, or whatever you like to call it, uh, they, they, the elected representatives, would then be there in the House of Lords, elected by the different regions. Then we'd have a constitution which people could accept because it was democratic. And it would also have a state which would function much better because it was more decentralised. What about the monarch's role as the head of the Church of England? Wouldn't it oh. be necessary for constitutional reform for the Church of England to be disestablished? Oh, I think so, certainly. Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it's a nonsense to have this this historic role for the head of the Church of England heading back to the great times when it was Catholic or Protestant and or democratic or non-democratic. It was, oh, uh, at least we've got away from that. I mean, we're, we're not a... Uh, the, we, we, this division between church and state is not complete. 
Uh, but it isn't as if the presence of the budget of, uh, of, of the bishops in the House of Lords have made us uh, an autocracy. Uh, but the influence, uh, the influence on the whole, is not something which would make us a more effective democracy. And a final question. Judging by the mood in Parliament at the moment, um, you, we, you've already touched on this, would it be fair to say that the odds of getting this bill passed are against you? Oh, the odds are very much against, I'm, I'm sorry to say. But, but we are very bad, as I said at the beginning, at constitutional reform. Uh, Time after time, people have tried to have sort of slightly half-baked attempts at reforming the House of Lords. They've all failed. Uh, and uh, what we really need is a constitutional commission to look at the way in which Britain can be a more effective, decentralised federal state. I suppose that the last time we really tried to have a constitutional revolution in this country was in the 1640s. Uh, 1640s. Or maybe 16, 1689, perhaps. Six, 16, <laughs> yes. Quite. I mean, the glorious revolution of 1688, wasn't it? Yes. It uh, was one case of reform, yes. There have been a number of very important steps of reform. The Victorian age was quite a step. The Great Reform Bill and then the later extensions of the franchise, but very slow. I mean, we were very backward in some ways compared with other countries in, in development, with the United States, for example. Dick Tavern, thank you very much, and good luck. That was episode 22 of the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. If you would like to help us challenge unfair religious privilege and support freedom of and from religion in Britain today, why not become a member of the NSS? Full details are on our website at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you like this podcast, you can find more episodes and more information about this episode on the website. Thanks for listening. <laughs>